1: Welcome to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Braman, guiding business owners to the exit they deserve. Ross is a financial advisor who knows that business owners work too hard on growing and caring for their businesses, not to leave it on their terms. Each week he interviews a different experienced
2: business owner, expert and other professionals ready to teach you effective, satisfying business exit strategies that will let you exit your business your way. Don't wait until it's too
1: late. Start thinking exit now. Here's your host, Ross Brannon. Welcome to the show. Today, we have a special guest, a longtime friend of mine, Vince Dodonna. Vince is a financial advisor who has been doing what he's doing for 43 years. He a, has a national practice and he's based in Las Vegas. He's a certified exit planner and an accredited estate planner distinguished, which means he's in the Hall of Fame. He has seen just about everything you can see. So I'm really excited to dig into this. Vince, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Ross, it's uh, it's good to be here.
1: So, you know, this is a, a podcast about exiting your business your way. You've been in this space dealing with business owners and high net worth people for multiple decades. And so I guess the first question I would ask you is, what do you see the biggest challenge that business
2: owners, when they're trying to exit their business, what's the biggest challenge they face? That's a really great question. So there's a couple of different ways of looking at that problem set, right? So the first is what are business owners thinking about every day, day to day? And what they're thinking about is running their business. So for the most part, they don't start thinking about exiting their business until it might be a little late in the game. The, there's a theory that says that people will exit the business when their desire to continue working is on the decline and their resources are where they need to be to make that choice. So, you know, if you're grinding it out day to day, sometimes you don't make the choice to exit until somebody comes along and says, hey, you know, I'm interested in spending $10 million on your business. What do you think? Generally, nobody should accept the first offer. That's usually a very bad plan. But, you know, so that's the that's the first issue is that people are not designing and organizing their affairs in a way that allows them to exit successfully. And so the whole the whole realm of exit planning is I'm interceding with that business. I'm saying, hey, you know, you have a five year, 10 year timeline. That's usually ideal. You start to think in like five to 10 year increments. You go, so let's craft the business so that way it makes it more sellable. We'll talk about that a little later. The big deal that I've seen now of late is that people exiting their business who are on the verge of exiting their business don't have a an end game to their life. Like they haven't thought of what they're gonna do next. Oh,
1: that's that's huge. Cause and I'm I'm not a big retirement guy. So, you know, you can I, I prefer the word transition. So if you're gonna quit doing what you're doing, you gotta move on to something else. Uh, because I've seen a that
2: firsthand with people. A lot of people don't have a something else. You know, I like to fish, but I can't fish every day. It's like you know, it's physically exhausting. Um and I know people who like to golf. Now, can they play golf every day? Maybe for a couple of months. And then after that, they have to say, like, like, what's my life up to? Right. And there is a there's a, some sort of a stat out there that says that something north of 60, 70 percent of business owners are miserable after they sell their business. Miserable. I have a bunch of people that I've known over my career that bought the companies back after the buyer, their the buyer who bought them out ended up like sort of not doing well with the business.
1: Well, what I've seen is, and we we both have seen this, is, you know, someone decides they want to sell their business, but they want to sell it like in 30 days, and they don't realize to maximize value, it does take the three to five to even 10 years of
2: planning like you're talking about. Absolutely. There are only professional buyers out there, and there are no professional sellers. So, (laughs) Ross, how old are you? Like you're 40-something? How old are you? 44, almost 45. Okay. So, let's call you 45 years old. So... And you've had one business basically your entire life, the business that you're in now. Right. So we know that the moment you decide to sell your business or transition out of the business, that'll be the first time you're doing that with anything. Right. And the person who's coming along to say, hey, Ross, I want to buy a business. He may have done that 10 times. So only professional buyers, never a professional seller. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that the first offer is not the offer. The only thing that can happen from the first offer typically is it can go down unless the business owner does certain things to go and improve value in his business. And there are a bunch of those things like um, you can't have, and there are plenty of businesses that do have this as a problem. You have only a few clients that create something like what the 50% of your revenue, right? Like example, if you were a retailer or actually a manufacturer and you sold Walmart, And Walmart goes and distributes in your stores. Well, you know, that's the best of times and the worst of times. Why is it the best of times? Well, because it's Walmart and they are buying a lot of your product. It's the worst of times because they're probably your only client. Like they're probably 90% of your business, which means that you're as a business owner, you're in a precarious place. So you want to make sure you have a diverse business base. The second is you want to make sure that the business is not Ross Brandon. Like, if the business is Ross Brandon, what are they buying? They're buying your labor. You suddenly end up no longer owning an enterprise. You now have a job working for somebody else. And so you need people to fill the org chart. So when the business owner is the guy who fills all the boxes in the org chart, that's not a very easily sellable business. It's it's, Uh, it's a well-paid job, basically. It's a well-paid job. But, you know, it's like if you owned a um, McDonald's franchise, If you own one McDonald's franchise as a business owner, you own a job, you have 15 stores, you got a business. Right. No,
1: that's right. And, And to your point about professional buyers, like you have private equity buying everything up. They do this all day, every day. Even structuring, like I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of people not really... I've seen private equity, especially in the medical world, they'll go in and buy a dental practice. They're going to offer somebody ten million dollars. Six months later, at sale time, they're they're closing for seven million dollars. It's the name of the game: just nickel and diamond down over the next right. six months. And and a lot of these buyers or a lot of these sellers, rather, aren't sophisticated enough to understand how the deal is structured, has a has an effect on the the taxation of that transaction. Also, and true. it's always <laughs> beneficial to the buyer unless you have very good representation.
2: Yes. Actually there's one there's one more piece of that that puzzle that's really important as far as getting value for your company. And that is you have to reward and retain your key employees. So if I have an enterprise and you are my star salesman Ross, right? And I go to sell my company and I don't have something in place that retains you, that holds you in place. And I come in one day and say, Ross, I have really great news. And you go, what's that, Vince? And I say, well, hey, you know, somebody's ready to buy my business. And then you turn around and say, well, what about me? And I go, what about you? You got your job. And and, and then you say, but I've given you 10 years of my life. And now all of a sudden you have a lot of power because you could say, hey, you know, you sell the business, I'm out of here. Buyer finds out, damages the value of the business. So part of my job as this being a good steward of my business is I have to figure out a way, an appropriate way, to retain you. I have to reward you appropriately and retain you. You know, I have a a medical practice, an amazing medical practice in Illinois that I'm working on. And um, the lead doc has a bunch of other docs that are very, very highly compensated, but are very marketable. I mean, they're really, truly marketable. So what we are doing is we're putting in a plan, what we call the whole realm of this is called non-qualified benefits, but we're putting in a non-qualified benefit plan that is so attractive that it would be very difficult for somebody to replicate. And this particular doctor, the lead doc, does not want to sell the private equity. She wants to hold on to the business. It's a great business. She can actually have it exist for a very, very long time. The people that work for her would rather not work for a larger entity. They'd like to work for her, but there's always the temptation that they'll leave. So you attract and reward executives or key employees. You make sure you have a diverse customer base. There's nothing more, you know, medical practice like she has. It's, not, it's a very diverse medical base. And so if she wanted to sell it to a third party, she could. And then, you know, the last is you want to make sure that, you know, you've done some sort of a life planned after you exit. Otherwise you're gonna be miserable.
1: Yeah. So what do you see though? Or not though, what do you see when um people sell their business for 10, 15, 20, 25 million dollars? And a majority of the time what I've seen is that almost all of their wealth is built up in the business, which that's just the world they live in. Yep. But like you said, they probably haven't done great planning. And so all of a sudden they have this liquidity event and from an estate planning standpoint, they got some challenges because they haven't done things in the most optimal way leading up to that. And and because this, that's a sandbox that you're an absolute expert and how, I mean, talk about that.
2: So the exit planning process has many, many pieces, actually not many, many, but it's got seven steps. Really. The first is you have to organize a business owner's objectives and business owners' objectives are, are more than simply the dollar amount they want for their business or the income they want. It has to do with how they want to treat their employees. Like, do they want to keep them, do they want the successor owner to keep those employees or do they not care? Is there an impact on the community? Is there an impact with charities? Like all those pieces, right? So there's a variety of things in this data gathering. The only thing that satisfies that data is the client's resources. And that's only two things business resources and personal resources. Now, generally, I would say 99% of the time there is a gap between what somebody wants and what somebody has. And so the job is to fill that gap. And there are several steps in there. The first is you want to make sure that they can't run backwards. So you want to retain value and you also want to grow value because if there's a gap, I often say that 90% of non-housing wealth is in the business. In other words, if you have somebody who's worth $10 million and they have a half a million dollar house of so the 9.5 million they have left, the bulk of that is the business and very little resources outside of that. I think you found that, Ross, in, in your dealings. Yes. And it, you know, certainly if it's earlier in their career, it's a much higher percentage. And maybe they've started to accumulate some money outside, right? So they want to grow. And they have to, in other words, they have to retain employees and reward them and incent them and all that stuff. And they all make sure that they're protected so they can't run backwards. So you want to put things in place like you want to protect your IP and you want to make sure that if a key person dies or leaves, you can't get hurt badly, like all those pieces. Now, then you want to look at, am I transferring it to an insider? Ultimately, like you have to have this vision of who am I now getting Giving the business to? Am I doing a transfer to insiders, which could be a co shareholder or a family member or a key employee? Or am I doing a third party sale, which could be to private equity, it could be to a competitor, it could be to a, somebody else? Uh, then you also want to look at business continuity. Because, Ross, if you were the business owner and you're f- going to be almost 45 years old, you want to make sure that between now and the time you exit, that there's a continuation plan in place. So that way, if anything happens to you or anybody that matters to you, the company can continue. Right. And that also means that your family gets fair value, which is very often where we use life insurance. And finally, you have the issues of estate planning, which is to preserve the wealth that you have and protect it from uh, divorcing spouses, lawsuits, the estate tax, most certainly. Right now, If we were looking at that as a step by step and like an order where we could say, well, what's the overarching issue? And that gets us back to estate planning. So if we think of estate planning as this overall umbrella, if we can devise an estate plan that leaves our business owner with the satisfactory strings of income and control over his wealth while he's continuing to grow it and preparing to exit it, we've done a much better job. And unfortunately, uh, the background conversation that most people have about estate planning is that it is restrictive. It damages the ability to run your business. It stymies growth. Um, It certainly impairs your ability to get income. Now I'm saying that these are things that people believe, but good estate planning doesn't do that, right? Good estate planning allows you to be able to have the satisfactory strings of income and control while you're growing your wealth. So I always like to look at what estate planning strategy can I implement maybe in advance of any exit planning strategies, because, You know if i meet a business owner and his business value is eight million dollars let's say that's my starting point is eight million and i can move the business into a protected environment i am way better off doing that in advance of helping him grow the business or engineering a solution to grow the business than i am saying hey let's grow the business and i should have done the estate planning right
1: right? because you're you're kind of for all intents and purposes freezing the value so if he sells it for 20 (laughs) if he sells it for 20 inside the estate that's a tax problem. If he sells it for 20 outside the estate, that's not a tax problem.
0: Well,
2: let's the you know, you still got to deal with capital gain taxes. So I'm not even talking about, you know, things you might do to mitigate or defer, you know, capital gains. I'm just dealing with the estate tax consideration.
1: And, and when people hear of tax estate planning, many times people think, oh, well, I have a will with a trust. And of course, I always say, Oh, yeah, what kind of trust is? It? I don't know. Or the best is, well, I have a revocable trust. That's fantastic. Do you know what that does? No. Do you have any assets in that? No.
2: No.
1: <laughs> I'm going to pay 10 grand to your attorney for that because it's not serving you much purpose. <laughs> and so, or if the or if their testamentary trust is just typical boilerplate, 25, 30, 35, kids get the money instead of obviously the more advanced and strategic way of doing it, like you and I know about. So there's a lot of things out there. And I think there's just a lot of um. In my experience, people think all estate planning is is created equal and it's not. And of course, there's different levels of estate planning. But if you're selling a business for eight, 10, 12, 15 million dollars, you need to be dealing with some of the top estate planners in the nation because there's ultimate a lot of strategies you should be considering.
2: You know, it, unfortunately I have to say this often to people. So Ross, what do you call the guy who graduates last from medical school? A <laughs> doctor. That's right. That doesn't mean you want them cutting you open. Right. So there's always a continuum of skill. For most people, somebody of average skill is fine. But when you're dealing with when there's a lot at stake, you really want to try to have best of breed people helping you because it it really matters. It really, really matters. And you get what you pay for. Yeah. Well, you certainly get what you get, (laughs) you know.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm saying if you're if you're spending a few bucks, just if you're doing a legal Zoom, you're getting what you paid for. That doesn't mean if you spend a lot, you're getting something good, but you want to deal with people who are good. And this is why this stuff is so intermingled, because exit planning is critical. But so is estate planning if you're selling a business.
2: Yeah. So this is one of my favorite clients. I have a client in the Buffalo area. There was a dad, two sons. Uh, a decade ago, we engineered the transfer of the business from dad. The sons already had a piece, but we engineered a, a transfer of the rest of dad's business to the sons. And also the sons ended up doing estate planning and they moved their assets into protected environments. Mm-hmm. A year and a half ago, I was called in again. I mean, I love these guys. I talk to them all the time, but I, I, I was brought in. And they said, you know, dad wants to look at his estate plan. Now, that's stuff I didn't touch, right? We just moved the business in in dad's case, but we did extensive estate planning for the kids. And that dad is uh, 87 or thereabouts, right? I will tell you, that is a little late to go to the dance when you're 87. (laughs) And the truth is, is that there's not much he can do that's going to mitigate the impact of the estate tax. There is... Interestingly, there was some life insurance in place, but it was the type of life insurance that does not do well in a declining stock market. And, you know, the thing I kept harping on was look, we have to get data on these policies. We have to get that. There were were a couple of policies, but we have to get data on them. We have to get that on. And, and and nobody here is insurable anymore. Right. So so it's like, what do we do with these policies? And we made the determination after looking at the data we got that they had to start putting in more money because it looked like even though dad and mom were not particularly well, they were going to live. And they want to we want to make sure the policy outlives them. So they in order to make sure that's true, they have to had to fund it. Now that was before actually it was two years ago. It was before the market went down, but the it had just performed less than it was expected. Now I had them redo it, like get the numbers again, and they had to put more in. So, you know, they could have done better planning early. They could have done more planning early, but I, you know, you can't make people do things that they're not inclined to do. Like I, I couldn't force him to make different choices. You know, the, the kids were my clients, really. The dad was kind of like an innocent bystander, but we, had, you know we created great effect for the kids, but there's like a limit to what I can pull off for the dad. Well, I've seen
1: this with estate planning, even if it's just basic legal documents for the average person, everybody procrastinates on that. So people will go out and get, you know, they'll go out and set up accounts or get insurance policies that they need to get, whatever kind, but they always procrastinate on legal documents, even at the most basic level for whatever reason, because it takes time, effort. You have to have uncomfortable conversations and you realize you're probably not going to need them for 30, 40, 50 years.
2: All true. All true. Uh,
1: and, and we see the same thing with exit planning to a degree. Cause it's like, Oh, I'm 45 years old. I, my business today is probably worth $10 million. I want to keep running this thing till I'm 55 or 60. It's not even in my mind typically to start setting things up for 10 or 15 years down the road. However, if I do, it will likely engineer a much larger sale if I go down that road. Am I correct in uh, saying that?
2: You're 100% in the way you're thinking about it. So the problem, unless you're in a business owner family, like we have a, you know, like mom and dad owned a business, grandpa owned a business, my brother-in-law owns a business, like unless you're in a business family like that, you always walk into the conversation as a business owner with an understanding of the way life works, from the history that you had so if you've never owned a business you never had anybody in your family run a business if you've ever had anybody exit a business you have a bunch of stories in your head that are based on you know your your own history which is limited and then stories that you hear that may or may not be true so you know and then there's superstition like if i you know if i start talking about estate planning it means i'm going to die well you yeah, no, everybody's going to die you know talking about anything is not going to cause that right you know my buddy got 20 million dollars for his business well it's a different business with a different set of structures and by the way you have no idea whether the 20 million was the number you could have gotten he might have been able to get 30 if he had done planning before you know all these numbers that people throw around you know the question you have to ask is relative to what it's the same thing like in, in the investing world somebody says to you i did really well in the in my investments well what did you get i you oh, my accounts went up well up relative to what You know, like, did did they go up relative to S and P? Did they go up relative to small cap? Like, what did they? I got that they went up, but how do you know you did well? Like, by what standard are you measuring? Right. I mean, that's really really good.
1: What do you see on the horizon for business owners who are either looking to exit or who will be exiting? Because there obviously is a, a large amount of them with the baby boomers kind of phasing out slowly. What what do you see? on the horizon that a lot of people likely aren't thinking about that they should be considering.
2: You know, as long as money is out there, you know, there's always the possibility that there's going to be some private equity firm that's interested in rolling up your type of business, right? It could be that there's somebody consolidating an industry. I'm not sure that the generation that comes after the baby boomers has any interest in running businesses. They want to like build a, a, you know, some sort of tech company and, you know, make a gazillion dollars in, you know, five years or three years or something like that. I'm not sure this is gonna sound terrible, but I'm not sure people younger than you, Ross, are interested in working. You know, they're they're interested That's in life a fair choices.
1: Statement.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're interested in life choices, right? But they don't but they don't necessarily understand is that life choices come with capital and money. Like you can you can buy your future by working hard, right? Or working smart or both. I think that um, the private equity space is cyclical. I don't know if there's the amount of money there was two years ago, but we'll see that go up and down. And you have to think in terms of, well, you know, if an offer comes to you, now you're 45, if money is there at 55 to take you out, do you want to stay on principle to 65?
1: Yeah, I mean the legitimate. Now, do you see interest rates increasing,
2: changing the market for buyers? I, you know, if you look at um, the capital asset, asset pricing model that people like Eugene Fama, a Nobel laureate, looks to for you know how markets work. When the market is riskier, when it's when the cost of capital is higher, businesses have to return more the world is riskier. The businesses have to return more to owners to overcome the risk in the market. You know, what's interesting is, it, you know, if you look at the history of the market, doesn't matter whether the Democrats are in charge, Republicans are in charge, the market always goes up. And some would argue that when Democrats are in charge, the market goes up more and they go, Oh, you see, well, no, the reason why is potentially because the market's riskier, right? So you just have to return more capital. So I don't think, as long as the, the world is made of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs have to sell things and satisfy consumer needs, business owners are going to do what they have to do to keep themselves in business. And will the people who get crushed and end up being no longer around? Yeah. But then there's always somebody who comes in afterwards. Like right now, as during this recording, we we've just watched. I think Facebook dropped seventy percent in stock price, or something crazy like that, right?
1: Yeah, and now, uh, that... the biggest crypto exchange in the
2: in the world just went bankrupt overnight. Right now, the question: Well, you know, but that, like, let's assume that we're not dealing with any nefarious act, actions, right? So, you know, does that mean that? Something like Facebook will no longer exist or does it mean that something else is going to take its place or does it mean it's not going to exist in the future? Like, who knows? All I know is, is that there are business owners that need help. They have to envision a future and they have to decide how they're going to get out successfully and getting out successfully means with top after tax dollar. We don't know what that number is, but we know by engaging in strategy, by planning their businesses appropriately, by rewarding key executives, by having a diverse customer base, you know, all those pieces, they're gonna do as well as they can because we can't control the externalities, right? So so I'd rather have a great business in bad times than a lousy business in bad times.
0: And
1: so obviously planning for the business is critical. And But the estate plan and the environment we're talking about, things that may or may not come, but we know what's coming in the estate planning world. And so could you speak to the urgency of planning from that standpoint? And even if you're not going to sell your business, but you think your business is worth $10 million and it's growing at, you know, X percent a year, you know, you have some challenges you have to deal with because at the end of the day, you know, the government is at the table having a conversation with you the question is how much influence do you want them to have when it comes to distributing your money in the end
2: could, could you speak to that yeah so what we know for a fact this is a fact that the uh exemption equivalent the or some bill called the unified credit is dropping by 50 percent at the end of 25 26 that's the amount of money that you could pass free of estate tax to anybody you wish and so Right now, it's a little over, I think, not that it's critical to know the exact number, but it's a little over $24 million, which means it's going to drop to 12. So instantly, somebody who's worth $15, $20 million is going to be exposed to the transfer tax when they thought they were protected under the current law. So that's baked into the law. That's the way it is. Now, we can add to that, that since the Obama administration, there has been an attempt to alter... The um, strategies that we had used to eliminate or mitigate estate taxes, things like uh, you know intentionally defective trusts, sales to trusts, things of that nature, even uh, there's something called a grant to retain annuity trust. There's many different structures, but in a world where we have a government that writes hot checks and needs to go and replace the money that they've been printing or with the debt they've been incurring, in order to do that, you know, it's like, we're, you know, why does Willie Sutton say he robs banks? Because that's where the money is. They're going to try to alter my ability, your ability, to transfer wealth to the next generation. Now, what's most interesting about all that is that in every green book, that's the IRS's interpretation of the budget, in every budget, all these strategies were shown to be grandfathered, meaning that if you did it, you'd be safe going forward. So I would tell you that if you have a, an inkling about doing estate planning, or you're with an advisor such as yourself, Ross, who is very conscious about estate planning, you should do it because if you do it, the odds are you're safe for good, right? If you, if you don't do it and the law changes, there's no going back. Like you can't, we can't relive the golden years of estate planning once they take away strategy from us.
1: Well, and just for, to give context – let people know what that estate tax exemption was under the Clinton administration. Oh, my God. Well, like 600 a person,
2: wasn't it? It was 620. I think the number was 625 or six eighty. It was some number that was low. So
1: that's, that's $625,000 per, per
2: person. That's thousands. Then huh. it went to 5 million. Uh, then under Trump, it went to 10. And this was all adjusted for inflation, which is why it's up to, uh, that's 10 per person, which is why it's now like 24 million. But the, and I hate to say this, but there was, you know, when Bernie was campaigning, he was talking about dropping the exemption down to like three, I think Elizabeth Warren wanted it at one, like, you know, when, you know I'm talking about a hundred, you know, a million dollars, right? So it's, you know, it, we're talking about the destruction of being able to transfer wealth in this country. And this is from people who don't have jobs. I mean, not like, you know. Real jobs. Right. Uh, right. Well, and it's just critical to, to point out that, in
1: my view, and I think you would agree, that estate planning and exit planning go hand in hand. You need to have someone who understands both. And you can have the greatest exit plan in the world and you can sell your business for $50 million. But if you sell your business for $50 million when the estate tax is now $12 million, i.e., in three years, you have a really big problem. I mean, yeah.
2: well, you know, who has the, so this is also like an attitudinal thing, right? So who has the problem? Right? Well, that's true. Business... It's really a
1: really good point because estate planning is not is not required. But yes. I've met yet to meet anybody who would willingly give money to the IRS over their children, even if their children were
2: morons. Yeah, well, look, if you had a and sometimes it's helpful to think of it this way. If you had a stock portfolio that was $10 million and in the last two years it went down to six million, were you happy about it or were you miserable? And the answer is you'd be miserable. So that's the same thing as having a $10 million estate that's decimated by $4 million. You know, so when we when we reframe the conversation, when we when we shift it around a little bit and people get their arms around, it, they go, Well, no, I wouldn't be satisfied with that. Look, you you have three potential beneficiaries of your assets: the government, charity, and your children. You can pick two, right? You get to pick two, so you know you could engage in charitable strategies that reduce the estate tax. So you have the children and charity, or you could have the government and your children. Like you, you have to make it. You have to make some choices, but again, Ross. You know, somebody like you or me has to intercede and break the the cycle that people are thinking the way they're thinking to to have them go. Oh, I see this is a problem. Oh, I you know something I I kind of heard it was a problem, but I wasn't sure it was a problem for me. Now I get it's a problem for me. Well, what can I do about it? Oh, I could do that. Well, I think I'll do that. Right. So it's a it's a conversation.
1: And this is why your advisors matter. Obviously, you're not going to have just a financial advisor like you or I. You're going to have CPAs and attorneys. But you and I dealt with a situation a couple of years ago where we were dealing with a very high net worth individual in a high tax state. And, um, you know, he just told his CPA, just told him, just pay the estate tax. Don't worry about it. And you had like the perfect response to that. I don't remember what it was. I don't remember. I don't remember if you could actually regurgitated exactly how you said it but if you hear someone an advisor just tell someone who has spent their entire life creating tens of millions of dollars and this guy was probably closer to 100 million than 50 million or at least now and their cpa said just pay the tax i mean ultimately you can do that because it's not your problem but the perspective from the advisor is i just have a problem with it what was what would you say
2: I don't, I don't remember what I. I remember it was a great line, but I don't remember what it was because you know some, a lot of stuff comes up in the moment. So this is also going to sound terrible. So if I'm dealing with a really wealthy, 65 year old, and his kids are going to inherit, you know, 40 million dollars, the kids inheriting are going to be worth more than all their advisors added together. Does that cause a little jealousy? Perhaps is that. Does that leave people to say, hey, they're getting more than enough? You know, one of the things that I, and you are like this, Ross, you honor and respect the fact that people ended up creating the wealth that they have. You don't think that they don't deserve it. you think you, you marvel at it? Like I do, you go, look what they've created. This is like the only country in the world where you could do that stuff, like legitimately as opposed to like being a Russian oligarch or something like that. But, you know, you, this country allows people to create ridiculous amounts of wealth off of their knowledge and willingness to put money at capital at risk. And, you know, I think that people deserve to hold on to that. I do. You know, I think Andrew Carnegie said that uh, you know, he said, uh was clogs to clogs in three generations. It is hard to hold on to wealth. Right. You end up with if you look at the history of the Vanderbilt family, a lot of the Vanderbilt inheritors were terrible with money, terrible business people. So you can't you can't guarantee that anybody's going to be able to hold on to wealth. But if you have the tools to hold on to your wealth for the next generation, why wouldn't you do that? Like, why wouldn't you do that? You know, there's a you know, there's a saying that says the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, my experience is, is that most apples, meaning the kids, you know, fall from the tree, they roll down the hill and they end up in the lake. They're not the same as dad. They're not the same as mom, right? They're different people. I have great kids. I don't know if my kids are going to be able to recreate what I've created. And all I'm leaving them is a leg up on the world. You know, between between generational attrition, like kids having kids, and inflation, it's very hard to hold on to wealth. And it doesn't help that the government's trying to take it all away too. So let's at least eliminate that part of the game. And let's yeah, make sure to, we're growing our wealth efficiently.
1: Yeah, I just think a combination of exit planning and estate planning is just such a powerful effect over wealth creation. And you don't have to feel the same way that Vince and I do. You can leave your money to the government. And if that's if that's your choice, it's a free country. But you still need to do and if you want to leave your money to the government or at least leave some of it, you you need to do a proper exit planning to maximize the value of, of your business. So Vince, if someone heard this conversation, they're like, golly, that Vince Sedona is the smartest guy I've ever heard. I want to talk to this guy. How would they get in touch with you?
2: Well, hopefully somewhere on this blog, you know, vlog, you're going to end up putting my contact information. Um, I would love to talk to people about this. I would love to work with you on more business cases. You know, you're a conscientious young man, inquisitive, smart. You make a difference for people. And I like working with advisors who make that kind of difference. I just uh, there's one last thing here, Ross, I don't I don't want to leave this aside, but, you know, we we end up earning compensation from the fees for exit planning, from the products we put in place, mostly protection products, which include life insurance. I will tell you that life insurance is a critical component, both in the estate planning world and in the exit planning world. And with a professional working with you, you can figure out how that fits and why it's important. We haven't talked about the the things that go into it. I mean, there's clearly legal work, but then there's financial products that also bolster the plan and make sure that it's effective. Okay. That's the game. The game is to put those pieces together in the most professional way possible so you get to the best outcomes.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a puzzle and you can't put a puzzle together without puzzle pieces. And everyone needs widgets financial widgets. And they're just merely tools that help enhance the plan and make it work. Because, you know, for example, you could talk like about a buy-sell. Well, I have a buy-sell agreement. That's fantastic.
2: Is it, is funded? it funded? Probably not. What, well, what do you What do you mean funded? Or, or, or this is great. Oh, you know, something, the funding costs so much, we decided to actually make our buy-sell much less. So yeah, we have a $10 million business, but we're buying each other out at a million dollars each. Or- well, No, that's-, uh, that's That's a bad deal. Or
1: or we're just going to pay the buyout, the out of cash flow, which is the absolute worst decision possible. And the only reason someone would make that is because no one has ever showed them the math.
2: It's a, it's a really expensive proposition. There's no, yes. You know, when when we ask people to buy a financial product and it costs X, they're comparing it to not buying a financial product, which is, looks like zero. However, every strategy that you don't implement has a cost. It's not zero. Right. You know, so so what does that cost? Let's quantify Let's figure out what the game is. Well,
1: I, and that's so critical to to literally weigh and measure a decision instead of basing it off opinion and rhetoric, which, quite frankly, is our tendency as human
2: beings to do. All true.
1: Yeah. So, well, Vince, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: You've been listening to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brand.
0: This podcast is intended for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC and our financial representatives are not undertaking to provide investment advice or make a recommendation for a specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be replied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Vince is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 120, Broadway, 37th floor, New York, New York, 10271, 212-701-7900. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, guardian new york new york california insurance license number zero b two four zero two zero arkansas insurance license number four zero seven three three one Strategies for Wealth is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Ross is a representative and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664, Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Security products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or guardian arkansas insurance license number one six one three nine zero three two california insurance license number zero l one zero zero seven three two zero two two dash one four eight two nine six expires twelve twenty four